All right, so hi everyone. This is Michael Cox and I'm talking to Larry Crowder, who is currently the Edward F. Ricketts Provostial, if I'm getting that pronunciation right, Professor of Marine Ecology and Conservation at the Hopkins Marine Station and a senior fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, both of which are part of Stanford University. And he is also an affiliated faculty at the Stanford Center for Ocean Solutions. If I recall correctly, I, I believe I met you first in Montpellier at a Resilience Alliance conference. I would say in 20, was it 2012, 2014, somewhere in there. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I met you along with the, the fisheries gang. You know, I, was, I think that's when I first saw Elena Finkbeiner present her work on Baja California. Mm -hmm. And I met Jack Kittinger, I think, at that point as well. Yep. Both of which, you know, I'm aware have, have worked with you um, during their PhD time. I believe Elena went to Stanford with you when you moved from there to there from Duke, which was the place where you had worked previously, correct? That's correct. And, and Jack, we hired as an early career fellow uh, when I was co-director at Center for Ocean Solutions. Okay. He was our first social scientist at Center for Ocean Solutions. So, um, oh, okay. Obviously a great pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember just having really good conversations with him, and now I believe he's at Hawaii leading uh, an organization within Conservation International. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, just to let you know, I don't know if Elena's talked to you recently, so she was a guest on this show a couple weeks ago, so we mm -hmm. talked to her about her transition from her time at Stanford to Conservation International, um, and that was actually following a visit of hers to Dartmouth in which she talked to us about the games that she's been working on with uh, Juan Camilo Cardenas, who was also a previous guest on this program already. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I really enjoyed talking to Elena about was her, you know, this transition from a more purely academic environment, although being aware that she had been working with a non-academic actors for a while too, you know, Conservation International. And, you know, looking at your work, Larry, and looking through, you know, your CV and kind of what you've done over the years, it seems like there's a transition that I perceive going from, what do we want to call it, more purely ecological work to a focus on, you know, interdisciplinarity, we could say transdisciplinarity, potentially a lot more articles about marine conservation, the, the project on bycatch that I was looking at. There's a large discourse now about interdisciplinarity among teams, but it's always interesting when one person seems to capture that within their own mind mm -hmm. via this transition. I mean, how I would love to just hear you describe how that felt to you, whether, you know, my perceptions are correct and why you, you made that move that I perceived as I've looked at your work. Right. Um, uh, yeah, it's a great question, Michael. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of a... Um, uh, one of those career journey things. Sure. <laughs> so I, I went to graduate school in ecology uh, because I was really concerned about um, the the state of the world uh, mm -hmm. and loss of species, um, the compromised air and water quality, and all that kind of stuff. I was I'm old enough to have been an undergraduate during Earth Day one, um, and so I, I went to graduate school with some alarm and with the with the faith that. Um, if I could understand the science, I could um, uh, help uh, r resolve some of the problems that society was facing. Right. Um, but when I got to graduate school in ecology, what I found was that the faculty's focus was very disciplinary uh, and very fundamental science. And so uh, I was in uh, uh, theoretical and mathematical ecology, experimental ecology, really uh, encouraged to address fundamental questions um, in ecology from uh, populations to ecosystems. And I really enjoyed that work, uh, but I kept having this nagging, so what does this have to do with the real world? <laughs> yeah, sure, okay. Um, and, uh, and so I think the benefit of graduate school was that I built a really strong foundation um, in evolutionary biology and ecological theory uh, and what constitutes sound uh, experimental science and data collection and you know, kind of a sense of rigor. Sure. Um, and then um, in my postdoc uh, at University of Wisconsin, I took my ecology toolkit, but began to work on the ecology of fisheries in the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the first application from being an aquatic ecologist or fish ecologist was a jump to fisheries, uh, where there are, there are a lot of applied problems. Um, some people think they can be applied by doing, they can be solved 
by doing more biology. Right. Uh, yeah. But but we manage the fishermen. We don't manage the fish. Um, so it becomes apparent right away that you need to think about um, how you influence the behavior of people. Um, we can have conversations with fishermen. We can gain understanding from them. The fish don't talk to us at all. <laughs> so right. yeah. I, I, got, I, got more, I get more interested in time um, with, uh, with solving those problems in the real world and in recognizing that my, my interdisciplinary training to that point was biology and mathematics, right. uh, that dealing with problems in the real world required an understanding of the social sciences and not just economics, but the broad social sciences um, and of governance and policy um, and law. And uh, those are all courses and areas that I didn't study despite my extensive scholarship. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and so I think um, when, I, when I moved on to faculty positions, again, I found myself um, in my first faculty post was at North Carolina State University, and I found myself in a program that was, um, you know, pretty fundamental science oriented, but it was also uh, at uh, an, an ag school, uh, a land grant school. So applied work uh, was encouraged. Okay. Um, and initially, uh, the applied science and interdisciplinary turned for me uh, to integrating what we know about fishes to what we know about oceanography. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're doing uh, fish ecology and life histories and recruitment variability with physical oceanographers that are modeling ocean dynamics. That seemed radically interdisciplinary at the time, uh, yeah. and, and I think was <laughs> at the time, uh, because people told me, uh, just like they told me at one point, biologists can't work with mathematicians. I was also told biologists can't work with physical oceanographers, and that turns out to be wrong. Uh, uh, we did work with early adopters, and it wasn't easy to work with everyone. Right. Uh, but there were physical oceanographers that were really sincerely interested in the biology and the impacts on fisheries. So, you know, the evolution just kind of continued. Um, uh, early on uh, in my career at NC State, uh, a student from University of Wisconsin walked in the door who knew everything about sea turtles and nothing about population modeling. Uh, and I was the flip side of that coin, right. not knowing anything about sea turtles and a lot about population modeling. Um, and, and what we did was develop a, a pretty rudimentary population model for loggerhead sea turtles that nest in the southeast U.S., which pointed to, um, you know, the, the single thing that you could do in that life history to increase the potential for positive population growth was improve survival in the large juvenile and subadult stage of the turtles when they're at sea. Mm -hmm. All of the conservation work at that point was on hatchlings and females on nesting beaches because they come to us and it's relatively easy to do that work. But the model more measurable, yeah, and more measurable. But yeah. the model said, "Wow, we got to reduce mortality at sea." Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, um, there was a major source of mortality in trawl fisheries, especially shrimp trawl fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico and Southeast U.S. And the very sizes they were killing, based on stranded dead turtles on the beach was the sizes that we needed to save, right? So the model pointed that if we could uh, come, come up with some, way, some kind of way to reduce sea turtle mortality in trawls, that would have a demonstrable effect um, on these sea turtle populations, all of which were uh, loggerheads and Kemp's Ridleys in the region were threatened or endangered. Um, and so uh, we published the population model in, in ecology um, and it, it took three years, like the sea turtle people didn't know what to make of it because it was all so new. Uh, but the National Academy Committee that was reviewing sea turtle management pointed to that paper as one of two papers um, that, uh, that really support the idea of requiring turtle excluder devices uh, in shrimp fisheries in the U.S. Um, to achieve recovery for those populations. Um, and... Um, you know, and then it happened. Uh, South Carolina put in turtle excluder devices, and then they went national. Wow. Since they since then they've gone global. So the fundamental ecology was understanding, uh, you know, linear matrix population modeling and combining that with a deep understanding of sea turtles and their life histories and things. But uh, the outcome was it changed policy at the national level. You know, three years after we published the paper. <laughs> so I mean, that's extraordinary. As an ecologist, what I you know I was thrilled. I said, "Can I do that again?" Right? I mean, yeah. Because you know, it seemed like just a magic thing that happened 
Um, and, and there was a lot capricious about that story about being at the right place at the right time. And it happened that the model said you need to reduce mortality in the large juvenile and sub-adult stage, which is exactly the stage that was being killed in the trawls. There were already efforts to come up with ways to get turtles out of trawls. And what this did was throw logs on the fire uh, for that to actually become national policy. And now internationally, turtle excluder devices are used to protect sea turtles around the globe. So even having a small part of that uh, as a researcher um, was a real thrill. And, and what it taught me was, you know, the, the fundamental science that I knew could really be powerful, mm -hmm. uh, but it needed to be integrated with a deep understanding of the natural history, uh, the policy framework, how, wow. how governments make decisions, and so on. And so that pulled me in an interdisciplinary direction that was quite strong. Um, and then I began in the context of being a faculty member in a zoology department, doing more and more of that kind of work. Um, in 1995, I had a chance to move to the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke, um, at, at uh, Duke Marine Laboratory. And the Nicholas School is, is uh, you know, kind of blatantly interdisciplinary. <laughs> you know, okay, fair it's, enough. Yeah. It's what they do. Right. Um, and, and, um, and again, I was able to continue to develop and make ties where my colleagues weren't just uh, ecologists or marine ecologists, they were anthropologists and economists and lawyers um, and, uh, and people who dealt with more broadly the human dimensions. Uh, it was there I learned about beyond governments, there was informal governance. Ah, uh, yeah. There <laughs> and the go. whole social ecological systems and Ostrom frames and all that kind of thing. And uh, most of the work I had done up to that point was um, working with industrial scale operations like industrial scale fisheries where you're usually working through regional fisheries management councils or government agencies mm -hmm. uh, but in small-scale fisheries around the world it's about uh, informal governance and how communities make rules for themselves in the context of the requirements of their their national or state governments um, the, the jump I made in that direction actually came back from the sea turtle story because we had worked for two or three years to tr try to estimate for the first time the number of sea turtles that were taken in longline fisheries around the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, as part of that, we had an estimate for sea turtle loggerhead and leatherback sea turtle takes in the North Pacific longline fishery. And that took several years to put together. We were really proud of the effort. It's since been updated and improved. But um, I was also working with a guy named Hoyt Peckham in Baja, uh, and Hoyt was working with small-scale fishers in, in the Pacific coast of Baja, and what he found was that um, fishermen from two villages, one village fishing bottom set long lines and the other fishing gill nets, were killing almost as many turtles as the North Pacific, the international North Pacific longline fleet. Uh, wow. Go, okay. uh, wow. So it's a couple thousand uh, in, the, in the entire international longline fleet. That was our best estimate, 1,500 1, to 2,000. And over 1,000 a year were being taken by these two villages in Mexico. And, and, and that kind of hit me like a two-by-four yeah. in the head saying, I'm working the bycatch problem, but I've been ignoring the impact of small-scale fisheries. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the upside of the small-scale fisheries arrangement was Hoyt had worked with these people for the fo folks in those communities, and he was trying to promote a vision of sustainability that worked for the people as well as the planet. Um, and they weren't even aware of the impact that they were having on the global, on the North Pacific longline population because they viewed these turtles as abundant where they fished. Okay. They didn't know they were endangered. Uh, but it turned out when he made them aware of that, uh, the leader of one of those two fishing villages uh, Puerto Lopez, Lopez Mateno, Santa, Santa Rosalia, I think is the right one. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, he was leader of this community that fished these long lines. And when he realized the extent of his problem, he apparently stood up in a meeting and said, uh, we had no idea we were having this impact. We're going to retire the long lines. And that one man's decision for his community saved 700 turtles a year. That's also extraordinary that that would just you know, happen. And, and, you know, and, you know, so, um, you know, when you, you know, as I worked through my career and I got into these interdisciplinary spaces, uh, things were happening that were exciting 
from a fundamental science perspective. Mm -hmm. We're doing new science that's rigorous and relevant and all that kind of stuff. But it also changes things in the real world and often changes things for the better. So uh, obviously that kind of thing gets really exciting. And so yeah. uh, uh, made a major turn and a lot of people still in my lab are taking a full gloves off social ecological systems approach to small scale fisheries. And Elena moved, did, was, did her master's with me at Duke and then moved with me to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Since then there are half a dozen others that are working in my lab on these issues. And in some places it's primarily social science research and it's other places it's more uh, biophysical ecology. Uh, but in all those places, it's both. And the notion is tr- to try to deeply understand the biophysical ecology, what the issues are, deeply understand uh, the community's interests and desires and capacities and so on, and see if we can come up with ways that uh, local people can make decisions which sustain their access to resources in the long term. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and we, we try to take, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a what we hope is a humble approach to this that mm-hmm. we, we never would tell people what to do. But the idea is to say, help us understand what, what the problem is. And we'll think through if there are ways that things that you could consider doing mm-hmm. uh, that make your situation more sustainable in the long term. And of course, recently, um, the take home messages come pretty strongly that a lot of the traditional practices, which have evolved culture in these system, culturally in these systems to make them sustainable uh, are um, being challenged by climate change. A lot of the rules that these okay. communities evolved, which seem to provide them with pretty sustainable fisheries over the long term, uh, now the fundamental productivity of the systems is changing. Their access to the resources is changing. Um, uh, one student is working with, uh, with indigenous fishers in Western Alaska, and the tundra is melting, and the ice edge is melting, and they can't right. get access to the sea or take their snow machines over the land to hunt. So it's really a serious problem. And we don't know whether we're going to be able to help with this at all, you know, right? Uh, because the problems are so intense. Uh, so I guess the draw of being interested in the real world and solving problems in the real world has been like a, a major magnet pulling me more and more in the interdisciplinary, even transdisciplinary direction. Yeah. And, and the breakthrough is, uh, about whether we can educate students to go in that direction. I, I've gotten there over 30 plus years in the business. Right. The question is, can you jumpstart that interdisciplinary kind of work from the graduate school level? Yeah. Wow. There's so much there to. Uh, it's Sorry a, for uh, the long, long story, but it is. No, it's tricky. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you just summarized 30 some years. So, um, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of questions. When you mentioned the communities and challenges they're facing currently it reminds me of um you know the framing of of these communities have gone have having gone through a process of essentially cultural evolution where they you know through some process of trial and error so the narrative goes they've developed norms and institutions that are well adapted to a certain social and ecological environment and it seems like a lot of their struggles now are with exogenous forces, whether they're political or economic or climate-based. You yep. know, they're Absolutely. well adapted to work, work the situations they've dealt with, but now they're dealing with really, really novel situations that they can't control. Um, yeah, I mean, it's and in, to some extent, I suppose it's on us as researchers to also think about, you know, how. I mean, there's this big narrative on, you know, adaptive, flexible management and governance. So I guess it's, you know, how do we try to implement how we how can communities be adaptive to really novel disturbances that they haven't had to adapt to before? And so when you were mentioning the, you know, you're, you're, you have this mix of PhD students that are getting essentially different types of education, it sounded like. I mean, I, I was interested in, in what your approach to PhD education is. <coughs> I don't know how much um, you're able to kind of tailor what you do to each student or whether there are constraints at the institutional level. It sounds like some of them would be, you'd almost call them conservation social scientists and some of them are more applied ecologists or whatever, whatever kind of labels that are used. Do your students tend to fall into one camp or another? Like do the theses tend to be like, is this mostly social science with like one chapter or something in basic ecology or, or how does that kind of play out? Um, 
Well, it's interesting, and you know, because you you've met and talked to Elena at length. Um, when I when I started moving in this interdisciplinary direction, I depended on my disciplinary foundation and partnering with people who knew those other disciplines. So right. I have no training uh, in governance, but I was able to hang out in an NC's working group with Orrin Young. That'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. over over a series of four or five meetings over a couple years, and so I had a I have a minor in ocean governance just from. Right. Learning from Oren, and he's one of the best in the world. And so I think in my generation, people were trained in a discipline. And if they had a if they had an inkling or an, a, a desire to be more interdisciplinary, they got involved in teams where I don't right. have no anthropology, but I have a trusted anthropologist that I work with. Um, and so uh, Elena's generation, and she's asserted when I've talked to her about this, that um, – you don't have to be a play in a team to be interdisciplinary. Now you can be interdisciplinary at a high level hmm. coming out of your PhD program. Right. And, uh, Elena, but uh, you know, Elena's undergraduate degree was, I think biology. Her master's was um, working on, on tourism actually in Baja, California, developed a lot of familiarity with that region. And her PhD was actually a PhD in biology at Stanford because she came to meet, with me and I'm a biology faculty member right. it was entirely social science and the game theory stuff follows on her interviews and participant observation and so on in 22 communities in Baja. And that didn't raise any eyebrows for her to do a lot of social it science. Did. Or, it uh, did. It was very, it, it still is difficult in the context of biology. Sure. Um, my, my, uh, 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 most of the other faculty, not all at Hopkins, um, uh, aren't they're, they're they're curious and don't quite understand why you'd want to spend time interviewing fishermen. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. The biology PhD dissertations tend to have um, two or three chapters that are mostly biophysical ecology, oceanography, fisheries, um, biology. People get and support, um, but they typically also have a chapter or two that's. Uh, involves participatory mapping for where the fishermen go wow, uh, okay, cool. they fish or interviews with the fishermen and things like that. And, and there's been some pushback um, among the biology faculty at Hopkins um, on, on uh, this interdisciplinary approach. Um, one response from uh, a faculty member not to be named um, about Elena's work uh, when she was defending her dissertation um, he didn't understand at all why she was doing all the social science and interviews with fishermen in 22 communities. Um, but when she presented her talk, it was quantitative social science and she did right. a lot of analyses and so on. And he talked to me after the seminar and he said, that was probably the most thorough statistical analysis of a data set I've seen since I've been a faculty member at Hopkins and he was near the end of his career. He said, and then he said, I don't know why she wants to talk to fishermen, but it seems to in have been rigorously you know, yeah. so I, I think, you know, what we're doing is kind of um, beginning to have an influence on people here where they see the value mm -hmm. of the additional work. And it may not be work that they would do or that they'd be interesting, interested in doing. Uh, but I think the pushback is becoming less intense and there's more evolution up to thinking about uh, coupled systems dynamics. And, you know, and several faculty members, two or three uh, out of 10 with me here, uh, I would say they get it uh, and they see the value of doing the interdisciplinary work. Um, some of them, uh, again, like me, collaborate with teams of interdisciplinary scientists on NSF, CHN proposals and things like that, but okay. they don't do the social science work themselves. Right. But now they have students who are, right? <laughs> so in addition to um, biology, where my academic appointment is and Stanford's a pretty traditional university from a, a departmental perspective. They're pretty di traditional disciplinary departments. But as you pointed out, there are all kinds of centers and institutes that pull people, yeah. pull people in from those various disciplinary departments to work on, uh, you know, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, very applied kinds of things. The, the, the other PhD program that I get students from is part of the Earth Systems uh, uh, School um, and it's called the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. Uh, and it was designed about a decade ago for PhD students that want to be gloves-off interdisciplinarians. 
uh, okay. environment. Uh, and they're, they're, they, they're, they're supported when they come in for a full five years. They have two advisors uh, in two different disciplines. Um, and what they're trying to do is build into an interdisciplinary space where there's not a lot of work already and there's a real opportunity to combine the, the perspectives of different disciplines to deal in, in a really advanced way with, uh, with complex problems that are faced by society, both in developed countries and in developing countries. So more than, you know, more than half my students, I would say, are in EIPER. Okay. Um, and there, there's no resistance to interdisciplinarity at Stanford. That's the design, right? Right. Okay. And in biology, it's uh, it's it, it just takes a little bit more work to assert that in the Anthropocene, humans are fully a part of ecological systems. So if I'm an ecologist, I have to be allowed to study humans. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else would be naive. I mean, uh, when I was in graduate school, Michael, that the and this was not so long ago. It was back in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> the faculty were teaching us. Uh, evolutionary ecology, and they said, so when you pick your experimental system, pick a co-evolved species complex where the forces of evolution can have shaped the interactions and things. So go out and find a system un unimpacted by people. And I'm going like, these guys are on drugs. I mean, it's right. Yeah, yeah. like, Come show on. me a system in the 70s anywhere in the world that's unimpacted by people. And if people thought that was true, with more and more awareness about climate change, you say, you could take the remote, most remote, uninhabited atoll in the world, and it's impacted by people. Right. Even if no human has ever walked on that atoll. So, yeah, so yeah. it's uh, it's real interesting how, in my career, that transition has occurred. And there were always people who did applied stuff and were worried about human interactions with the environment. But there were the purists who were building disciplines and theory and frameworks and so on that strengthen a discipline. Right. rather than uh, something that gets us into an interdisciplinary space. So uh, basically, yeah. I drunk the Kool-Aid and my students are on board. People yeah. come to work with me because they want to do this interdisciplinary work. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I was, I'm thinking about what you're doing now and, and thinking about this tremendous um, turtle example. So something that's interested me more and more is kind of this a, a reflexive turn, I think it's referred to in anthropology, where we start to think about our own positions as we do science. And for me, it's meant kind of turning the analytic lens that I've applied to resource users um, back on the groups that I'm a part of, right? So a lot of us study collective action. We study how you know resource users can avoid the tragedy of the commons. How can they produce public goods, et cetera? How can they cooperate? Yep. And I found it increasingly productive to ask some of those same questions to groups of scientists, right? Because science is usefully interpretable as a public good. And so, you know, there's this question, how do we all kind of try to get along together, particularly across groups? And I think collective action is quite arguably more difficult between groups than it is within groups. Yep. Right. So when I'm in the Dominican Republic, you know, the main challenges are between Haitians and Dominicans. Right. As being quite different groups. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, in your experience in these different settings, first with the working with the turtles and seeing kind of that really explode to have a real impact. And now your work trying to move interdisciplinary work forward. You know, how do we, another way to say this is how do we kind of get beyond a baton model of interdisciplinarity where one kind of because I've been parts of projects where, you know, you have an ecologist, you have a social scientist, and so one person does one thing, and they kind of pass the baton off to the next person, <laughs> right? And, and, and we, we have a relay race, and by the end, we've, we've kind of finished the race, but, you know, we, you know, how do we really work together more beyond kind of passing this baton? I mean, yep. I have an assumption built in that I think that we should move beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, and it characterizes a lot of my experience. Yeah. Um, uh, and and you can go back to the educational system. So sure. suppose you have a, a student who recognizes or who posits, who hypothesizes that the way to solve problems in the real world is to be fully interdisciplinary. Yep. Then they go off to graduate school and they're trained in disciplines. Uh, right. So they, they learn economics from the economist and atmospheric chemistry from the atmospheric chemist and ecology from the ecologist and even in their own heads they have to put that together um, yeah. and, I, and I thought 
in the Nicholas School, which was interdisciplinary uh, and committed to being interdisciplinary, uh, it was still, uh, when I got there, uh, a lot of uh, people who were deep and, and incredible nationally, internationally known scholars in their discipline who taught the students their discipline, right. um, but didn't really talk about how to put things together. Uh, Mike Orbach, who you probably know as an anthropologist, um, was at Duke Marine Lab, and he actually became director of Duke Marine Lab, which was a marine biological station with oh, wow. an anthropologist director. Wow, uh, that was a statement. But um, Mike and I started the first course, I think, in the Nicholas School that was co-taught by a natural scientist and a social scientist from beginning to end. So it was a marine conservation course um, that we called Marine Conservation Science and Policy, and from the beginning to end, we taught it together. We were in class together every day. Wow. And, so, and, and what we focused on was the fundamentals that they needed to know from the natural science and social science and governance, but then talk about problem solving and case studies and how those various knowledges come uh, into solving problems. And that was uh, an eye-opener for me. Uh, I think it was an eye-opener for the students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the metaphor I've come up with, Michael, is that even in the best interdisciplinary programs that I've visited around the country, the, it's not an unfair metaphor to say um, people teach their disciplinary expertise. Um, and if they do interdisciplinary work, maybe a little bit of about the points of contact with other disciplines, but there's not a full interdisciplinary engagement. Um, right. And my metaphor is it's like showing students the ingredients for a great gourmet meal, but not teaching them how to cook. How to put the ingredients together, really, right? Yeah, like, how do you take those great ingredients and, and make a wonderful meal? So yeah. we, don't sh- we show them the ingredients in the courses, but we don't show them how to cook. Right. Um, and, and a lot of us are cooking our own ingredients like we're a, a buffet line, right? Right. This is, this is the baton, and the right. green beans are here, and the meat's here, and the dessert's here. But that, that can come together to be a great gourmet meal, or it can come together tragically, right? Because you're eating yeah. your own your own dish. Um, and so, uh, and so more and more, I think about the, the key to successful um, engagement for students in interdisciplinary work is to generate training courses that actually cross those disciplinary be- uh, boundaries mm-hmm. go beyond passing the baton or making the individual dishes for the buffet uh, and say, we're going to, we're going to give you the whole story. And the right. key part of the whole story is how these various knowledges and conceptual frameworks and, analytical tools come together that does seem to be the hard part the problem in the real world it's hard yeah the people only people who can teach that are people who have crossed that rubicon right yeah if you've done that work in an interdisciplinary framework then you can talk about it if you've been safely ensconced in the world of economics and you can talk to an ecologist or a decision maker but you actually haven't worked together uh, across those disciplinary boundaries then uh, it's hard with any credibility to teach that yeah yeah uh, and so uh, and so I think the baton passing thing goes back to our educational system where um, we haven't uh, you know a lot of us have learned to work in an interdisciplinary way and we've learned about the and part of it comes down to uh, respect <laughs> and patience Interesting. yeah there to say so if I'm a if I'm a natural scientist and I think social scientist is kind of a joke um, how could I work with a social scientist credibly uh, because, you know, they detect the disrespect or, um, you know, and there are a lot of natural scientists who are very quantitative who don't understand or appreciate the value of qualitative social science at all. Right. But qualitative social science for me is just an analogy to natural history in the ecological system, right? Yes, um, I've thought about that before. Yeah, that's really interesting. The great natural historians, before anybody did experiments or framed the hypothesis, went out and observed the world and tried to right. observe what was going on. And they didn't talk to the birds, but they spent a lot of time with them, right? <laughs> yeah, so I have a question about that, actually, because I've perceived this similarity before, and I've wondered, right? So in social science, we have like this big intergroup distinction, qualitative, quantitative, and there's a lot of noise there. And antagonism, even with the, within the social sciences. Right. I mean, that's, that's one thing that's interesting is there, I feel like between groups, right, there's frequently in, in psychology, this is called the, I think, the outgroup homogeneity effect, where people kind of view people from other groups as basically being the same. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So when an ecologist might look at a social scientist, they don't make these distinctions. And I'm sure social scientists lump, you know, 
ecologists all in the same group too. And when, you know, if I ask an ecologist, well, don't you know about like the, the biota here? And they might say, well, no, it's actually a lot of work to actually understand any particular ecosystem. So I've, yeah, I've been wondering, so qualitative social science, you know, it's an equal footing really with quantitative social science. And people argue that j- just the way you perceive and describe the system is completely different. And so um, yeah. they're comp- they can be very complementary, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting. There's so much warfare among social scientists. It really is. Yeah. You're, you're really not a real anthropologist unless you're quantitative or unless you're qualitative. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, and I hit ecology as a graduate student during the boom of experimental ecology. And if you didn't have a reductionistic hypothesis right. and, and, a, and a intensely replicated experiment, you weren't doing science. And they kind of said, well, in order to frame a useful hypothesis and, do a sensible experiment, you have to know the natural history. Right. But they certainly weren't emphasizing teaching us natural history. They were teaching us experimental design, right? Right. So natural history went out of vogue in ecology, and it's it's now uh, enjoying a new vogue. Is it? that was I was wondering, like, where is that now? Is it coming a back? Lot, well, a lot of people are pushing back, saying that, you know, on the importance of observation. Right. Because, frankly, I mean, you know, a lot of the, the experimental work um, you know, ended up being kind of naively based on some cartoon of what the real world world looks like rather than something that relates to the real world. Right. The whole experimental effort in ecology was experiments at the scale of a PhD, which means it can be in, in marine systems uh, a few square centimeters to a hectare or something right. for a summer <laughs> or a couple summers. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't deal with the time scale and spatial scale of dynamics like of the North Pacific Convergence Zone, I mean, you can't do an experiment. Right. So if you insist on the rigor of experiment, there's some systems that are just excluded from scientific analysis. And so there's more and more emphasis now on natural history and on on observation, uh, especially in oceanography. Okay. Our, our remote sensing tools are awesome. And it's not, it's, unless you're proposing a large-scale iron enrichment experiment for the ocean, it's hard to do experiments in the ocean, right? Okay, but right. Observation, you know, hypothesis-driven observation is still really important to do. So you can use deductive approaches um, with observation. It doesn't have to be purely inductive, like I just went out and experienced nature and it told me what was going on. Right. You know, so um, I think I think uh, natural history is coming back to a certain degree, but the I think the rigor approach is toward experiments, toward highly quantitative kinds of things. There are departments that wouldn't hire uh, a qualitative researcher in any field, social right. or medical science, because it's all, it has to be about numbers. And what I've come to appreciate from some of my anthropologist friends is a deep understanding of a culture uh, isn't enumerate you can't enumerate it necessarily right? right and it's not just fluffy right it's not just waving your hands and telling stories it's and stuff. not you know what, what we've done to try to relate for the people who aren't too keen about social science and qualitative social science is okay so the quantitative science provides the science and the relationships but the qualitative science provides the texture mm. mm-hmm. it, it deepens the understanding of maybe what kind of solutions are possible given what you can measure is going on. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I, 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 I love the qualitative social science for the understanding and how challenging it is makes me think about these systems. But even in the context of the more quantitative work, uh, the, the context it provides, the texture it provides yeah. is critical. And, that, and you know, I, so my students have presented to the biology faculty here in their dissertations, their quantitative analysis and stuff like that, uh, cut, uh, you know, uh, backed up with quotes from Mexican fishermen. Yeah, right. They play back in Spanish, translated to English. And, and you might say, why is that necessary? But it adds so much dimension. Yes, to the work I mean, that we're doing that we just said, put it in, people will get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it right after all your beta coefficients, right? And, 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 it's, and it's played pretty well, actually. So okay. I feel like um, uh, your, your sense that there, things are moving uh, toward interdisciplinarity and toward greater respect and appreciation of the contributions of different disciplines 
fundamentally to the recognition that we can't solve the kind of problems that society is facing from any single disciplinary perspective. Right. You could say, so I started doing social science because I failed as an ecologist, right? Ecology won't get me there <laughs> to hmm. solutions, right? I need but to that point. Okay. I need to have access to these other fields. Um, and I think when people feel the need for each other, when they respect each other, when they value these different perspectives, it's like, you know, it's going from black and white to color television. You know, it's a jump. Yeah. A lot of people aren't there yet, but I, my sense like you is there's momentum and, you know, the, the, the graduate students who are applying certainly to work with me, they get it. They're pushing me hard. Right. Yeah. For, yeah. For interdisciplinary focus, even though I'm kind of already there, but uh, it's, it's been really fun, fun to work with them. It is interesting. I think in a lot of places, some of the most significant changes happen intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. And your point about respect is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly people are very sensitive to feeling disrespected. I have a, a friend here who's a faculty member in this interdisciplinary environmental PhD program that we have. Right. And one point that he makes is that we would all do better as a group if we understand the constraints that each other face. Yeah. Yeah. We all have our research questions and you can, if you're not going to just dismiss someone's research question, but actually accept it as being interesting, then you can't understand their methods or appreciate them without understanding the constraints they face and actually answering those questions. Yeah, exactly right. So to one person, you know, 50 observations might not be a lot because you're able to generate 5,000 in a couple of weeks, but to someone else, those 50 observations, each one represents like a four hour conversation. I think, um, well, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with collaborators in different disciplines, and um, I think, you know, they're, they're beyond respect, there is a, we need to understand each other and what our constraints are. And, and I guess sometimes that, that um, discussion can move into uh, all the reasons why it's so difficult for us to work together, so let's give it up. <laughs> okay. And in other cases, it's like, okay, now that I understand what your constraints are, I think I, I can, I understand more deeply, right. uh, you know, what's going on and, and, you know, that's good. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, you know, it takes, it takes time. It's just like going to start working in a new ecosystem where you don't know the players in the natural history or going into a new community that you haven't worked with before. Yeah. You have to build relationships and trust yes. and things. And, and, um, you know, we talked about tribalism and territoriality and how difficult it is. Yeah. All the tribalism and territoriality exists on most university campuses. Yeah. In the world, right? <laughs> and so, and, and how does tribalism break down? I think it ultimately breaks down because people are competing for space and money and so on. Prestige. And it, it, it ultimately breaks down when you have the realization that you need each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We all need to feel like we're part of the same group producing a shared. You might be just selfish and you say, I'm an ecologist, but I want to figure out how to solve problems in this system. Yeah. I need to understand something about economics. You don't want to admit that because you think ecology should rule the day and inform the decisions. But, you know, um, uh, my friend, Mike Orbach was always, you know, like politics is a thing. (laughs) Yeah. And you can't say what's missing here is political will. Kind of like a preacher. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. But politics is a thing and people study how politics functions and how groups make norms and rules and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's a scholarly field uh, that we can tie into. For sure. And diminish. Yeah. So um, I had kind of two final questions for her, if you don't mind. One was, I mean, we've talked, I think, maybe asymmetrically about the ways in which ecologists can sometimes be dismissive of social science. I'd be interested, you know, conversely have you experienced ways in which social scientists can be dismissive of ecology? I mean, suppose one thing you do here is, oh, well, you know, you can't generalize from experiments. You all don't care about context. Maybe that could be thrown around. Yep. Is there anything else you would add to that based on your experience of kind um, of the ways in which, you know, this other group can also be unproductive? I guess, you know, I mean, you know, I've seen the, the internecine warfare between social scientists that I'm going like, this is fierce, like within social science, yeah. Within, within a social science department, you know, like that, yeah. you know, within a discipline, people can be at war with each other about methodologies and worldviews and right. philosophies and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, 
and I guess I, you know, I don't feel like I've ever been dismissed by a social scientist. Uh, I've been accused of being an amateur, um, like, you know, because we start doing right. social scientific kind of work, doing interviews or participant observations, and we don't have any formal training as social scientists, or I don't. Right. Um, but my students are now getting that training, and so I think as we're as as ecologists, when we become sympathetic to needing to understand the local people and the context and so on, we start doing that work. And some social scientists would prefer that we partner with somebody who knows what they're doing, which is not a fair, which is a fair uh, thing to raise. Um, and, and others just think, you know, we're not equipped to do it and we shouldn't be doing it. And then I've asked them, so do you want to jump in on this project and help us do it? Goodness oh, no, I don't want to do that either. Oh. I just, here to criticize. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the new generation, the Elena Finkbeiners, uh, are crossing over. And they, right. have, they have credibility both in the social science, within some parts of social science and with some parts of ecology. And so, uh, you know, Elena can go toe-to-toe with some of the best social scientists in the socio-ecological systems realm. Yeah. She doesn't just do that. Um, you know, uh, you know Javier Becerto, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was head of the search committee that hired him at Duke, and I'm quite proud of having been part of that because he's awesome. But uh, I was at breakfast the first morning with Javier, and I said, so Javier, as an undergraduate, you were a biologist. You're a skinny kid from Baja, California, out there measuring fish and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then you got interested um, in the social sciences part of that. You ended up doing the post postdoc with Lynn Ostrom, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, is it a conflict for you? Do people criticize you? Because I've heard from some disciplinary perspectives that, you know, if you are a, a social scientist now, a theorist actually at a high level as he is, he kind of wasted his time doing all this work on fish. Oh, wow. Fisheries and all that kind of stuff. So are you less of a anthropo- social scientist? I guess he calls himself a sustainability scientist. But are, are you less of that because you spent time doing something else? And I've had people assert to me, my students are econ- economics PhD students, and if they go off and do ecology, they're going to be viewed as less of an economist. Uh, and I said, so because you spent this time doing biology and then later doing social scientific theory and all that kind of thing, are, are you less of a social scientist than you might have been if you studied just social science? And Javier asserted immediately I'm not less of anything at all. I'm something entirely new. I work at a high level uh, between two disciplines. I understand the fish and the fishermen, but I also understand the fundamental theory and frameworks for uh, how humans cooperate to solve problems and all that kind of stuff. And, And when he said, I'm not less of anything at all, I'm something entirely new, I was ready to hire him on the spot. It's a good answer, yeah. Because what he asserted is, you know, if you if you're if you're working, for example, at the space in the space between anthropology and fish ecology, you know people could say, well, he's not a real anthropologist or he's not a real fisheries biologist, and and I think the new generation is starting to assert, yeah, I'm not less of anything at all. I'm something entirely new. Right. And I think I think that's I don't know that Elena's adopted adopted those words, but that's how she thinks of herself as not in a tr- not of a traditional discipline. Right, or traditional tribe. She's in some kind of space between the tribes, right. being very effective, right? Yeah, yeah. And she do she does that by being scholarly and knowing those disciplines, but also uh, moving from one village to another. Right? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> and learning. So, so uh, I, I think you know I, I really have this great hope that things are changing, and that uh, and it's and it's changing pretty rapidly. I think hmm. so much so that the. A lot of the pushback, pushback that we're having from some of the traditional departments, I think, are uh, pushback that are kind of insecurities about losing their primacy sure. or their edge. I mean, and most universities still hire people in departments, right? So you want to hire an interdisciplinary scholar, but anthropology won't hire them. Right. So where do you put them? Yeah. Uh, and biology won't hire them. Uh, so there's not a there's not a traditional department that will hire them and the, and the, the, where they go are the new interdisciplinary programs like the Nicholas school, right. like sustainability uh, Institute at Arizona state. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, that there's like 10 or 12 yep. uh, 
organizations around the U.S. that are really pushing the envelope. Um, but if people are truly interdisciplinary, they pretty much end up in those spaces because it's hard for a traditional disciplinary department to hire them. Yeah, yeah. All right. So final question. You know, you mentioned the experience you had co-teaching a course, and that sounded really productive. Um, you know, I think sometimes it can be challenging based on, I think there can be institutional constraints sometimes where, say, it's it's difficult to to co-teach in some places because yep. based on the accounting, et cetera, that exists in lots of... Who gets credit for teaching? Who gets, right. All, all of the bean counting that has to take place. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, what do you see as, as some effective ways to kind of move forward, given your own experience, given the challenges that we've talked about, trying to be more interdisciplinary, maybe also trying to be, you know, transdisciplinary, having um, not just scientific goals, but, um, you know, valuing, substantively valuing broader impacts, wanting to work with non-academic actors, et cetera. Yep. You know, is it, is it a summer school, you know, where a bunch of folks get together for like two or three weeks and, and really try to dedicate um, themselves to, you know, not just passing the baton, right? So, I mean, I think one of the challenges when you get folks together and then when I've, when I've seen sometimes like co-taught courses, I think it's the same challenge is how do you actually get the instructors to work together and not have it be, well, now it's person A's turn. Now it's person B's turn. And yep. there's not much integration. It's yep. all about integration, it seems. So how... How do you think we can get that integration what, in, in, in education or, and or research? Are there things that you feel like would be particularly promising? Okay. Well, Michael, this has been fun. Lots of great questions. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, and I've seen these interdisciplinary programs spin up at various universities and mature. So yeah. looking when they're new and when they're 10 or 15 years old is different. But the baton passing is the norm because yeah. you're recruiting faculty who come from disciplines and maybe they don't even do interdisciplinary work but they're teaching economics in this new context, right? Right, uh, okay. Uh, but even at, even at the Nicholas School, when Mike Orbach and I were teaching this five-week summer course in marine conservation science and policy, the bean counter said, well, so you're each teaching half this course. We're going to pay you each half the month of summer salary. Right. And he said, no, 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 you don't get it. We're both in class every right. day, yeah. all day, with the students in the field, in the classroom. Right. This it's not less work to be do taught this. by Mike Orbach or Larry Crowder. Yeah. As we conceive it, it can only be taught with full integration from both of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had to fight for summer salary to teach this course. And what they were, you know, the bean counters were pushing us toward baton passing. Right. And said, there is no baton passing. This is running side by side. Right. Um, and um, and I, I think that the, the way to... Well, my sense is there are a lot of students out there who get this in a way that university administrators don't. Mm -hmm. They see the solutions to problems in the real world. Maybe it's, it's at the interface of computer science and social media and big data, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, so okay. they, and so they said, I can't really do a computer science degree because I need to also understand geography or anthropology or something like that. So I think the, the universities are... Uh, the, the students are more ready for this interdisciplinary approach than the university, uh, traditional university hierarchies are. Yeah. I think summer courses, um, institutes where you bring on students and faculty who really want to do, teach in an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary way, the early adopters, if you will, and say, yeah. so let's show students how this is done. And the satisfaction of being taught how to cook. Rather yeah. than just be showing the ingredients, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know, how do people learn to be uh, three-star Michelin chefs? They work with people who know how to blend all those ingredients, right? Right. They're apprentices. They come up with something chosen. impressive, something that's powerful, and all that kind of stuff. And um, and even the world's best cook doesn't always make a great meal, but they know more about how to get it done. And yeah. There's there's no one cook in the kitchen, right? Those great kitchens. Right. an entire staff of people with different expertise to carry things out. So uh, I think to get inter students introduced to it, summer courses that are gloves off, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, solutions oriented uh, is really exciting. But yeah. then, then they'll go back dissatisfied, dissatisfied to their university. I hear this all the time, especially from people now in developing countries who want to do interdisciplinary marine conservation, for example, in my case, and they say, yeah, my university 
doesn't do that. And that my university could be in Mexico. It could be in Croatia. It could be anywhere in the world. The universities are very traditionally disciplinary. They aren't interested in applied problems. They aren't interested right. in your disciplinarity. But the solutions to the problems of the 21st century are inherently interdisciplinary and international. And if you're not yeah. doing interdisciplinary and international, you're not going to get there, in my view. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, probably nothing less than a revolution in how university education works <laughs> is going to get us there, but it has right. to start with steps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the steps would be, um, you know, to challenge, you know, that like Stanford has done this cross-cutting thing where they have disciplinary departments and interdisciplinary centers and institutes. Mm -hmm. and the interdisciplinary work can happen and be valued, but those interdisciplinary programs don't hire faculty. Right. right? Uh, the Nicholas School at Duke was set out to be interdisciplinary beginning, in the beginning, and they hire faculty, not a biology faculty and an economics faculty and an atmospheric chemist faculty member from those disciplinary departments. You're in the Nicholas School. Right, you're a Nicholas faculty, okay. And, 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 I, and I think that that's more likely, that kind of structure is more likely to get you to an interdisciplinary frame because you hire people who want to be in that context. You hire people who do inter interdisciplinary work. Um, they work with each other. They depend on each other. The colleague next door is in another marine ecologist like you. Right. The, ecology, the, 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 the person next door is a cultural geographer, right? Right. Um, and so you learn from the people you drink coffee with and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I'm really excited about the evolution I'm seeing. Um, we can speed that evolution by introducing students to the kitchen <laughs> and preparing the meal and, yeah. and, and then they go back to their home university and they say you know what we're not we need to do more than we're doing here and I think universities especially at uh, students especially at private universities like Dartmouth and Duke and yeah. Stanford they're more influential than they think they are like if they go to the dean or the department chairman and say you know what Stanford's missing out they could be doing thus and so and it would really be cool and a lot of students would want to be involved in that um, and and uh, I talk to students all the time, and they think they have no power to influence what Stanford offers and how it offers it. And I'm going like more powerful than almost any other university I've been at. Right. At a public university where your tuition pays, you know, a third of the tab. You know, at a place like Stanford, their tuition pays more than half of the business plan. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Undergraduates have to be satisfied that they're getting what they think they need for the 21st century, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm all the time working on my part of my strategy with working with graduate students and postdocs is to, you know, help people transition to this interdisciplinary space and then send them off to be, uh, you know, to be proponents of that in whatever system they find themselves in. And I've been in a variety of different systems with a variety of different constraints. And in every case, I've been able to soften the constraints yeah. and do more interdisciplinary work than the biology department expected me to do. And at first, they think it's odd and they can't figure it out, but eventually they understand what I'm trying to do. Yeah, uh, kind of once they see you doing it. Maybe. And of course, I'm also a full professor with tenure, so I can kind of do whatever I want to do. <laughs> that helps, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I get, I get criticized, criticized even every once in a while myself, and my response is, Look, I don't pick apart what your research priorities are and them. I probably wouldn't choose to do the work you do, but you know, we're at a university. We're all we're all supposed to respect what the other people are doing. And, and right. if you don't understand it, then don't criticize it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good if you point. decide that in my field I'm not doing quality work, then good, go at me. But if you don't understand my field and you just don't like qualitative social science, then it's unfair to be you're an, you're an uninformed critic. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like saying, so uh, uh, a qualitative social scientist is going to come in and tell you about small-scale physics and how nobody cares about that or nobody knows about it. It just doesn't anything. matter or something, right? Nobody yeah, needs yeah. to know about that. Right? So, yeah, yeah. so, Michael, I think the revolution's underway. And what I like to think about is ways to foster that. Great to hear, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and mostly it's through students, undergraduates and graduate students. You can yeah. give them the taste of the brave new world and then see what, where they take that. Let them run with it. Yeah. I feel like we need to start some new program called like the social ecological kitchen now. Yeah. Well, I, I'd be happy to be one of the cooks with you. So there you go. That'd be fun. I think it'd be great fun. And, and I, and I, and I think 
you know, like NSF has more and more of these uh, interdisciplinary programs where they're looking at broader impacts and scientific, scientific cutting edge outputs, but also applications. Um, and, you know, and you could certainly make the case that preparing the next generation of students to do that from, uh, you know, underrepresented groups as undergraduates, maybe you spin the stuff up, you know. Yeah, yeah. But for graduate students in universities, like when, when Mike and I were doing the interdisciplinary conservation science and policy course, we had 35 to 50 students a year from all over the world who came to that course and, you know, from all over the United States who came to that course. And more and more universities have spun up a marine conservation course, but it's usually taught by an ecologist. Oh, wow. All right. So so they've adopted the course, but not the model. (laughs) Right. Uh, Of having, uh, you know, in addition to Mike and I, we would have guest speakers in uh, every week. You know, scholars came in every week during those five weeks. And then we also brought in, like, there's some lawyer from the faculty. So you bring them in and they give them a little environmental law and Washington, D.C. 101. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and that's really helpful. And so um, we tried to make sure that at the end of the five weeks, they'd seen uh, men and women and people from diverse ethnicities and from different parts of the world using different disciplines and combining different disciplines. And when the students saw that happening, they really went for it. Like, this is how things should be. It's not yeah. how the university is. <laughs> right. But they see the value in the interdisciplinary approach. And so um, you know, uh, I was taught by my writing teacher, show, don't tell. So uh, with you, I can be preachy a little bit. But the, the way you change the world is just to show the success that you can have. Right. When in the case of going back to the sea turtle model, you shake up a person who knows everything about turtles and natural history and nothing about modeling and somebody who knows about population modeling and nothing about turtles. Yeah. And the paper we published changed the world, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know that that's a little over the top, but you know, measurably it did, and yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's still my second or third most widely cited paper. Mm-hmm. Hal Caswell, the Matrix modeling guru of the entire world, it's his most widely cited paper, and he had a he had an incredible career career working through Woods Hole. And I met him in a meeting a few years ago, and he said that turtle model paper that we sent it to him for review, and he did some new analysis. We added him as a co-author. It's his white, white, most widely cited paper, and that it, like getting to Hal Caswell's list would be pretty amazing. But being his most widely cited paper was crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and that paper literally would not have happened, never in a million years, without putting those two people together who had different kinds of knowledge and different ways of thinking. Yeah. Uh, Problems. So, um, you know, when I, and I have a few other stories of things not quite that dramatic, but that were surprising uh, successes, really eye-opening. And that put me in a position in my career to say, can I put myself in a position to do that kind of thing again on a more regular basis? Um, And, you know, and that's probably uh, like looking back over a baseball career and say, yeah, that that was the year that I hit 70 home runs. (laughs) And and you don't ever get to 70 home runs again. That's really an incredible story. But um, and that paper, maybe 50 or 60 though, right? That, that, that paper was published like uh, six or seven years after I finished my PhD and it really became a launching pad right. for much of the other stuff that I've done. And, and I guess what I, I became uh, somewhat less fearful about just going full tilt into areas that I didn't know and trying to find partners that were willing to educate me. And, uh, and people have been very generous for the most part. Wow. Well, Stories within stories here. It's a, a common theme, though, is really about the value of working together. And, and you know, and, and I guess last point is that um, how do people get to appreciating the value of working together? Uh, it, it, for most people, it comes out necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm-hmm. You're working on larval fish recruitment dynamics, and you know everything about larval fish and natural history and so on, but you don't understand the physics. Right. How do larvae get from place to place? And you just find out that, you know, I hit a wall. I can go no further on this issue unless I'm willing to engage a physical oceanographer. Yeah, they write partial differential equations, and I can't understand them, and they use different media to communicate with each other. But if you're not willing to open that door, you're stuck. So so a lot of people move toward interdisciplinary because they hit the limits of their own discipline. Right. It's not willingly. It's a lot of – it takes a lot of time, and and, it – intensity of interaction and learning a new language and culture. Yeah, really. 
you do it because you're stuck, right? And I think that's probably the primary motivation, not a sudden revolution, revelation that it's really fun working with all these other disciplines. Right. Well, as you said, it's hard work, right? It's it is like, fun when you get there, but yeah. uh, most people get there actually by, by hitting the limits of what their own discipline can do. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. All right. Well, I, we could go on for days, I'm sure. but um, I'm sure. No, it's been really fun talking to you. And, and uh, if you come up with any schemes for, uh, for uh, moving the revolution ahead, I'm on board. Let's talk. Sounds good. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Well, thanks again for your time, Larry. Okay. Talk to you later. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.